0: I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing Taiwan President Ing-wen's recent transit through the United States. What are the implications of her stops in New York and Los Angeles? And what does her transit mean for U.S.-Taiwan, U.S.-China, and cross-strait dynamics? Here to discuss this on April 6th, is Mr. Randall Shriver, Chairman of the Board at the Project 2049 Institute. Prior to this, he was Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo-Pacific Security Affairs. Previously, Mr. Shriver was a founding partner of Armitage International, LLC, a consulting firm that specializes in international business development and strategies. He was also a founder of the Project 2049 Institute and served as President and CEO. Before this, Mr. Shriver served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. Randy, thanks for joining us today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Randy, we're covering a, a, a very critical and important topic today, which is Taiwan President Tsai wens transit of the United States, which just concluded uh, yesterday, or actually probably today, depending on how you calculate the, the end of the transit. Uh, from what, from as Given all your time focusing on the Indo-Pacific and your expertise on uh, Taiwan, U.S. Taiwan relations, how do you see this transit, and how do you see, particularly, how do you see this transit given the history of other presidential transits through the United States? How common are these transits, and how has China historically responded?
1: The transits themselves are fairly common, uh, once every couple of years, probably two, once every two to three years, and it's based on the fact that. Taiwan maintains some official diplomatic relations in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, On this particular visit, uh, Tsai Ing-wen visited Guatemala and Belize. So uh, when Taiwan presidents make those visits, it's become very common practice for them to transit through the United States. Uh, The transit stops themselves are, are not, as the word might imply, a quick change of Planes are a quick rest before continuing on with the trip. They, they tend to be two to three days uh, for rest and comfort, uh, but they also do private activities during these transits of, of various kinds. And I would say this was a pretty uh, normal and conventional type transit, and the activities were, were more or less consistent with past practices, with a couple of, of exceptions, which we can talk about. Uh, but th- but it happens at a time when there's higher U.S.-China tensions and and uh, a particularly difficult time between Washington and Beijing. So I think there was more attention to the transit, even though um, I think by objective measures, it was a pretty standard uh, transit Fort Tsang went on this occasion.
0: Randy, you mentioned there were several elements of her transit that were uh, extraordinary. What, what were those elements that uh, you found that were different from prior transits?
1: Well, I believe meeting with the Speaker of the House was an elevation of past practice, although we've had speakers visit Taiwan, as uh, most of the listeners will know from the recent visit of Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Um, But it's very normal for members of Congress, uh, both the House and the Senate, to meet with the transiting president. Um, Tsai Ing-wen received an award and recognition from the Hudson Institute in New York. That kind of Activity has happened in the past. Uh, on the on the other side, um, she really did not have uh, public coverage and public remarks, which has happened in the past. Uh, President Chen Shui Bian made public remarks. Um, Lee dong way uh, going back to one of the first transits when he spoke at Cornell University as the uh, graduation commencement speaker, it was a public event. So, you know, I would say. On whole, there were some new wrinkles, but for the most part, in total, it was a standard normal transit. Um, But I'm sure our our friends in Beijing won't see it that way. And they've already made statements uh, criticizing the the transit and criticizing uh, Tsai personally and and the U.S. government for this activity.
0: Uh, Speaking of Beijing, China's response, how has China typically responded to these transits? And what what do you expect, or what have you seen so far of the Chinese response?
1: Typically, we see response uh, in the form of diplomatic messaging, both before, well, before, during, and after. Uh, I've been on the receiving end of some of those demarches in my career. Um, we see public statements of condemnation, usually from the podium of the foreign ministry, um, and from time to time, we see uh, military activities uh, as a means of displaying their displeasure and, and trying to impose some cost on Taiwan and, and U.S.-Taiwan relations. I think uh, of, of more recent, and, and in particular, the visit of uh, then Speaker Pelosi, uh, the military element was accentuated and was a, was the prominent Uh, part of the Chinese response. I think on this particular transit, uh, as of our conversation, we haven't seen uh, uh, enhanced uh, military activity directed toward Taiwan. But we all recall when Speaker Pelosi visited, the military activities really took place after she departed the island. So it's something we'll be watching closely over the next couple of days.
0: And if China were to take elevated military activity against Taiwan to the same vein that China took after the Pelosi trip, or even more than that, um, how do you think that will impact the dynamics moving forward? Because what we saw after the Pelosi visit was what uh, establishment of a new normal around Taiwan. Do you think China could potentially use this, what they might view as a opportunity, to further escalate against Taiwan?
1: I think the Chinese side has been opportunistic and they do uh, establish so-called new normals, as you say. And I, I think that was the case after the Pelosi visit. But uh, look, there are other new normals that, that get set as well. This will be, 2023 will be a year of a record number of congressional visits to Taiwan, uh, like nothing we've seen before. Uh, in fact, um, chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Mike McCall, is in route Taiwan right now. Uh, and there he will have, uh, other members with him. Uh, this is one of several delegations we've seen this year. Uh, the select committee chairman, Mike Gallagher has been to Taiwan. Some of his colleagues on that select committee on the democratic side, um, uh, like Ro Khanna have been to Taiwan, uh, in, in terms of people who have pledged a visit to include, by the way, Speaker McCarthy, he might still visit Taiwan at some point. Um, we're expecting this to be a record number a year. So if the Chinese intent was to try to dissuade future congressional visits, given their response to the Pelosi visit, uh, like a lot of things they try to do, I think that this has backfired and they're going to see even more congressional support for Taiwan as we go forward.
0: Speaking of congressional support, could you comment a little bit about what you thought uh, President Tsai achieved during her trip? As you mentioned, she, uh, she met with a bipartisan number of representatives from Congress. What, is there anything that you saw from her trip that um, really set these meetings apart? Or were there any tangibles that she was, specific outcomes that she was seeking?
1: Well, I think it's important that Congress have these opportunities, you know, when they wrote the Taiwan Relations Act in uh, 1978-79. And uh, by the way, President Biden uh, was in the Senate and voted for the TRA uh, in 1979. Um, But that event, when they did that, they wrote in a, a role for Congress in the implementation of the Taiwan Relations Act. So when we think about arms sales, the actual language of the TRA is that the president and the Congress will determine what arms to make available to Taiwan. So that's just one example. So I think it's important that members of Congress can meet with the president of Taiwan, in this case, Taiwan, take her measure, listen to her in terms of her uh, interest, her concerns, what she identifies as kind of support she'd like to see from the United States. And I think on this particular occasion, her main message was Uh, We need support. We need people to stand by us uh, in in a period where we're facing increased coercion uh, and military activities designed to intimidate the people of Taiwan. We don't want to feel isolated. And then I think there were some specific requests uh, related to security assistance, mostly to do with the backlog of foreign military sales that have been agreed to and in many cases contracted and and paid for, uh, and are now delayed in their delivery. So I think she was uh, partly there to say, uh, we need your support, not only symbolically, but we need uh, better performance on the delivery of systems that have already been promised to Taiwan.
0: So, uh, Randy, one argument that I've heard from um, a colleague who you may know well, but whose name I won't mention here, is the argument that some of the symbolic uh, support to Taiwan, particularly in terms of public meetings, uh, public displays, as well as um, including public rhetoric to support Taiwan, it, it's useful, but not if they can't be matched by substantive, actual concrete support to Taiwan that helps Taiwan's capabilities. And one colleague has recently mentioned that the too much of the symbolism it. Uh, without the matching hard capabilities, could actually be damaging to Taiwan. What What do you think about about that? And how does that fit within looking at the present England's recent transit?
1: Well, I think it's fair to say that if we're going to strengthen our rhetorical positions, we should also strengthen our support to Taiwan and strengthen our own posture in the region. And I think all of that is going on. I, I would like to see more, particularly on the economic side. I think that was another part of Tsai Ing-wen's message. Uh, but I understand that the U S and Taiwan will be making some announcements related to the 21st century trade agreement. Uh, but I'd like to see, you know, something very robust, like a us Taiwan FTA, I think that would do as much for deterrence as uh, any particular military system we could sell to Taiwan. Uh, so I, I, I agree uh, in part with that observation that we need to do more to directly support Taiwan as our rhetoric uh, strengthens in, in the eyes of uh, Beijing, at least. There's a lot we can do on our own posture and, and those things are underway. I think there's been very important announcements from the Philippines related to four additional. ECTA sites, which are uh, military facilities that U.S. forces will have access to and can forward deploy uh, things, uh, equipment, uh, perhaps even uh, lethal equipment, such as ammunition, uh, important developments out of Japan, uh, their own statements about uh, doubling their defense spending and moving into counterstrike capabilities, but also, you know, very quietly Uh, talking to the U.S. more about bilateral military planning related to a Taiwan contingency. Important announcements out of Australia with the uh, AUKUS uh, statements about the optimal pathway forward for the submarine program. But what you're going to see is even uh, more on the U.S. presence and posture piece here shortly, given that Australia has revised its national defense strategy and uh, its strategic outlook. So there's a lot happening to strengthen our ability to under underpin deterrence. Uh, but, you know, deterrence is a psychological phenomenon, and we have to make sure that it's persuasive, compelling, and credible. And uh, there's only one judge to that that really matters. It's the person you're trying to deter. So uh, hopefully these things are being noticed and noted. Uh, I would also like to see more U.S.-China direct uh, communication and and uh, messaging. You know, I think one of the uh, unfortunate parts about the, the spike in tensions between the U.S. and China is uh, to use the phrase that my kids use about uh, text and phone calls. We're being ghosted right now, and that includes all the way to the president. We've been unable to schedule a Biden Xi Jinping call. Uh, that happened to Secretary Austin around the time of the Chinese spy balloon incident, where he tried to use one of the hotlines and uh, the Chinese would not uh, set up that call. So this is, uh, this is also of concern. And, and, you know, we need to hold the Chinese to account for this. Um, if they're not willing to talk in, in uh, difficult times, um, then, you know, if all the messaging is from the podium, uh, how can we really know what's important, uh, what red lines might exist in their minds? Um, this, is, uh, this is a problem and, and we need to be reminding not only China, but the region that uh, we're making our uh, best efforts to avoid war through strengthening deterrence. And we're not getting any help from the Chinese. And by that, I mean, not just their coercion and their military activities, but their unwillingness to talk.
0: I guess one upside that we have is even though China might be ghosting us, China is still meeting with many of our close allies and partners. Um, including uh, right now, uh, Macron, who's in uh, who's in Beijing right now. So we do have these other menus to reach out to the Chinese, but it's still no substitute, as you know, for direct U.S.-China engagement.
1: I agree, it's no substitute, and and um, it's on the margins helpful to have that dialogue between China and our allies and partners. But let's look at the substance of that too, and let's look at the outcomes. All the reporting on the Macron visit is that uh, he was rebuffed in his attempts to get Xi Jinping and China to play a constructive role in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And China seems unwilling to uh, take this issue up with Russia in a constructive way. Uh, Despite their own diplomacy in Ukraine, uh, the Chinese continue to to firmly be in Russia's camp and, and their number one enabler, really, when it comes to prosecuting this very ugly conflict in Ukraine.
0: Speaking of that, it does seem that it's hard for me to find a single case of a close ally or partner speaking to the Chinese and not being rebuffed on whatever core issue that they are raising to the Chinese.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the the Chinese for all the things we say we're concerned about, you know, one thing that I don't think they've been very successful at is is their soft power and being able to leverage soft power into meaningful diplomacy. And I've often observed that in the Indo-Pacific, uh, our worst relationships are probably about as good as China's best or, or you know, vice versa. China's best relations in the Indo-Pacific are about as good as our worst. I think that's a more or less an accurate statement. Um, I, I, I don't think they uh, have done enough to assuage the concerns and the anxieties of of people in the region that their own activities have raised and brought about. Now, I think we should note the apparent success of their diplomacy in bringing uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran back together. And in fact, uh, the role of an intermediary that seemed to uh, launch uh, Riyadh and Tehran in the direction of reestablishing diplomatic ties continues. The uh, diplomacy is uh, now taking place in Beijing. Um, But I would say that's a case where, uh, you know, if they're successful, we've got to have a little bit of a watchful eye on this. We uh, certainly uh, don't want conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and we don't want to see the the proxy wars in places like Yemen continue at great human cost. Uh, But at the same time, you know, these are countries that themselves have been on trajectories of concern for us, Iran for a long time, Saudi Arabia more recently. And so, um, we should understand the direction that this is going and how this could, uh, enable Iran to continue with activities of concern to us. But, but look, I think, you know, the Chinese are interested in playing a bigger role in the middle East and trying to find their footing when it comes to diplomacy and this looks like this is one. Uh, area of success for them, at least from their perspective.
0: I wanted to bring the topic a little bit back to uh, to Taiwan and, and the Thai transit, and ask you perhaps to be a little bit more speculative. Um, so I know we're st- it's you know only Thursday, April sixth. Where st- it's possible that we might not see a larger scale Chinese reaction until tomorrow or into the weekend or the next week. But say China does respond. Significantly militarily, what do you think should be the appropriate U.S. and Taiwan response? I'm asking this because um, some of the perception after the August Pelosi visit was that perhaps the United States and Taiwan should have done more to prevent China from establishing this new normal. What are your thoughts on this?
1: Well, I have thoughts. I'm not sure they'd be ones that would be taken up by the Biden administration. I again, I think uh, we should be establishing our own new normals, including closer trade ties. Uh, But I will observe, uh, Bonnie, that there there are increasing risk for China, not only the literal risks of of coercive military activity and the possibility of an incident or accident, but uh, as we get closer to Taiwan's own election, you know, they have a terrible track record when it comes to putting their thumbs on the scales. They they try to help one particular candidate or or one side, and they end up helping the opposite side. And so, presumably, they learn from all this, and and they're they're attempting to, to get more sophisticated. Uh, Ma Junzhou is, uh, I believe, still in China as, as we speak. Um, uh, clearly, the, the the Chinese will have a preference for the KMT candidate when it's uh, selected, and. So they've got to start thinking about the proximity of the election and how their actions might either help the candidate of their liking or, or hurt their candidate of their liking, and so I do suspect we're going to see a little bit more of a muted response uh, because of those factors as well. So you know we'll know more over the next couple of days, uh, but I think it's we're, we're sliding into the the, the real. Uh, height of the political season in Taiwan. And uh, the Chinese are going to want to impact that in the right ways from Beijing's perspective, and, and therefore would have to think about the impact of their military activities, one would think.
0: And, and you noted that Ma, Ma ying Joe is currently still in China. He might be uh, probably, he's. I believe he's ending his uh, tour very shortly. Do you see China gaining much from Ma's trip? It was clearly orchestrated to be timed ara- uh, to to align with Tsai's transit. But it's not clear right now that Ma's trip so far has won China significant gains either way.
1: I don't think we know enough yet about what happened behind closed doors. I think at a more... General level, the Chinese have been willing to engage with the KMT side uh, of recent, Uh, Andrew Shaw, the deputy party chair has made, I believe, two visits to China, they had a uh, visit of a a PRC, uh, uh, official CCP uh, representative to Taiwan not long ago, hosted primarily by KMT representatives. So I think what they're trying to do is present a contrast with the people of Taiwan, that there is a party of peace and reconciliation and stability, and then there's a party that, uh, if they continue in power, will bring more uh, tension. Um, it's, of course, a tension that the Chinese themselves are creating, and it's a dynamic that they themselves are driving. So it's really a false choice in, in that sense. Um, but I've spent enough time in Taiwan recently on the ground to see some of the messaging that's associated with the upcoming election and they're definitely trying to say a vote for the DPP is a vote for problems and a vote for the KMT is is a vote for peace and stability and and maybe even economic uh, benefit, um, which is out of old playbooks for the KMT uh, and and previous campaigns. Uh, But look, uh, you know, that'll be for the people of Taiwan to decide and like I said, Historically, China hasn't been very good at, at putting the thumb on the scales in the, in the direction that they want to see it go. So we'll see how all this plays out.
0: Uh, we're also hearing some messaging from Chinese interlocutors, whether at the Track 2 level or other, uh, through other forms of discussion, that uh, if there were to be a return of the KMT to power in Taiwan during the next uh, 2024 Taiwan presidential elections, China might be willing to scale down some of the military activities facing Taiwan. Do you believe any of that?
1: Well, we can only go by what we've observed in the past, which is um, during the last KMT presidency, You know, they achieved uh, 22 separate cross trade agreements and there was somewhat of a uh, step back from the diplomatic competition There were, uh, among those agreements, there were uh, massive uh, uh, trade agreements like ECFA. Um, But at the end of the day, you'll recall that, that the Chinese became very frustrated with the KMT president and really wanted to see a process begun on political issues. And of course, mind Joe at the time was in no position to do that. He'd already had to face the sunflower movement that protested his 23rd attempt at a cross-strait agreement. Uh, he faced a massive rebellion on that and then the, the polls, which heavily favored, uh, the DPP opposition at the time, Mindjo Joe really wasn't in a position to begin political dialogue. Uh, he pulled off a Singapore face to face meeting, but, uh, really couldn't address political issues. And the Chinese became very frustrated with that. So I, you know, I don't know what happens behind the walls in Zhongnanhai and how they think about these things. Um, Their goal is not peace and stability and coexistence. Their goal is unification. And I, I suspect even a KMT president wouldn't be in a position to push hard for that given where the population of Taiwan is. And I would think that uh, they would reach the same levels of frustration with a KMT president post-2024 as they did in the past. And so that uh, basic framework of not really wanting peace and stability, but wanting unification, they're always going to run into a wall, whether that's KMT or DPP, uh, given the sentiments of the people of Taiwan, as far as I can see.
0: Thank you. So, Randy, in the interest of time, I'd like to ask uh, one final question to wrap up the podcast. And that relates to what you mentioned earlier. You said that uh, you view 2023 as quite a significant year in terms of the planned U.S. engagements with Taiwan. And you mentioned the uh, planned congressional visits to Taiwan. Uh, How do you see the congressional visits shaping uh, U.S.-Taiwan relations moving forward? And what else do you you see planned for U.S.-Taiwan beyond the congressional visits?
1: I think you are going to see a record number of congressional visits, and a lot of that will just be a show of support and fact-finding for our members. Um, you know, as as uh, much as Taiwan is in the news these days, you know, I find that a lot of members uh, who are obviously busy people and focused on things like uh, the debt ceiling and other important issues, just uh, don't have the time to be very deep on on. Taiwan and all the nuances. So I think, you know, a lot of that is just show support and fact finding. But there there will be some visits that will be very much uh, dedicated to uh, learning about Taiwan's requirements and viewpoints in order to inform specific legislation. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, I think there's a good chance Congressman Gallagher will go back to Taiwan and hold a public field hearing in Taiwan for his select committee. I think there will be members of the, uh, armed services committee who are working on NDAA provisions that will visit Taiwan and they'll want to get their legislative language. Right. So I think it'll be a year of a lot of visits and some will be very specifically directed at legislative efforts. As far as the administration, you know, I think they're into a a pretty good rhythm when it comes to the um, uh, political leader engagement, and I don't mean at the presidential level, but senior civilian engagement through things like the special channel uh, and other uh, established dialogues. I think where you're going to see a little bit of a uh, enhanced engagement plan is on the military side and military training. Uh, Tsai Ing-wen made that point uh, during her transit that uh, Taiwan military would, would like more training from the United States. And I think there's going to be more Taiwan troops uh, maybe at the battalion level visiting the United States, receiving training from state national guards or uh, even U.S. military. And so I think that'll be a, a relatively new feature, but but much like China's uh Uh, malign attempts to influence the Taiwan election, I think the US will be careful not to influence and impact the election. So through 2024, you'll probably see a bit of a careful approach to handling uh, political leader engagement and and high level engagement in Taiwan uh, in in the spirit of not impacting their election there. It's historic precedent that both candidates would visit the United States. in the lead up to the election. There's a complication this time that William Lai is the sitting vice president, but I expect they will find some way for him to visit the United States and engage with them before the election. And then uh, once the KMT selects their candidates, uh, one would imagine that they'd visit the US as well. So that's sort of an every four year phenomenon, but it it will represent high level engagement that that China will be concerned about uh, in the coming year.
0: Uh, Randy, I know I said that was the uh, the last question, but your answer actually sparked two quick questions. If you don't mind, Uh one was on the um the select committee's public hearing in Taiwan. Uh, so you you currently view that public hearing as more uh, uh focused on sort of requirements for Taiwan's defense, or do you think it'll be broader than that? And the second quick question is, you mentioned the prospects for U.S.-Taiwan mill-mill and the increase in trading. Do you have any sense that uh, other countries are now slightly more willing to engage Taiwan on either the military side or through other means that could eventually lead to more mill-mill?
1: So on the first, I think if there's a public hearing and, and uh, people like Congressman Whitman and, and uh, Congressman Gallagher have signaled their intent to do that. Uh, I think it'll be broader. I think there is interest in the select committee to understanding how we can shore up critical supply chains and, you know, the sector that comes to mind immediately with Taiwan, of course, is semiconductors. So I I think it'll be broader than, than just the defense issues. And I think that's appropriate. Our relationship with Taiwan is a comprehensive one that involves major trade elements. Uh, my own governor here, uh, Governor Yunkin, plans a trip to Taiwan uh, when he goes to Asia and visit Japan and Korea also. But Taiwan is uh, the, the Commonwealth of Virginia's fourth largest destination for agricultural products. So there's important relationships here that our that our members are interested in exploring and, and probably enhancing. So I think the the U.S. is always a barometer of sorts that other countries look at. And so there's a possibility of, of more enhanced interactions on the part of, of third parties. I think it, if there's to be movement there, I think we'll see it first on security assistance. Uh, maybe um, uh, there, are, I, I understand there are some uh, European countries that are looking carefully at that. There's also the possibility that third parties will contribute to uh, let me say the, the ability of the U.S. to strengthen its position in, for a Taiwan contingencies, uh, contingency in a way that's, that's indirect to Taiwan. For example, uh, if a third party contributes to uh, Filipino uh, site development and infrastructure development, that could help U.S. forces, uh, particularly in the northern Luzon area in the event of a Taiwan contingency. So I would I would think of it in a in a, in a broader way uh, because I think you know direct interaction with the Taiwan military is is going to be pretty sensitive for a lot of countries in the Indo Pacific still but there are countries that are very focused on helping us maintain deterrence and there's ways they can do that uh, without you know sort of breaking those taboos on on interacting with Taiwan's military and I, I mean taboos from their perspective so I, I would keep an eye on things like that
0: great well thank you very much Randy this is a very wide-ranging conversation starting with Taiwan but then also broadening a bit to focus on China's general policy before foreign policy before returning back to U.S Taiwan thank you very much for joining me in this discussion today
1: my pleasure thank you.